Hey, good morning. Happy December. Happy first day of Advent. How many of you are like, what is this guy doing out here? Bring out the kids. They wrote me in to come see my grandkids, my niece, my nephew. Nobody said there was a sermon involved. Well, the good news is I got to hurry because they didn't give me much time today, but it is wonderful to be together. So thank you for coming out. If you're a guest this morning, my name is Ryan, the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And if uh, after today you have any questions, which is highly likely you do, uh, I would be more than happy to answer any of those. Have a cup of coffee. My cell phone number's right there in your program. Well, it might not be actually given that you don't have an actual program. You got the uh, pieces worth of brochure, but it is on the website, 207-608-1106. Shoot me a text and we'll set that up. I would love to do that. So it's good to be together. Together. Uh, for those of you that are coming in today, and maybe you haven't been here in a little bit, maybe it's been a hot minute, maybe it's been a moment since you've been in church, thank you for coming. I know it can be a big deal, quite difficult to walk into a church. Maybe a, a past experience was not so wonderful. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for having the courage. We've been in a series uh, about hope. It's called Hope With Us, and we're exploring the science and spirituality of hope. And uh, over the past few weeks, we've really been unpacking this idea. And hope has three elements, three key elements. I won't give you a pop quiz to see if you remember, but basically they are vision, right? Hope requires that us be able to say, there is a better, brighter future, and I can see it. The second thing is a pathway. I see the path to that better, brighter future. And then the third thing is, I recognize I have agency. I have the ability to participate in that. I'm not just wishing, hoping, waiting on someone else. And those are the kind of key ingredients for hope. How many of you ever heard of the band, The Script? Raise your hand up nice and high. Any script? Yeah, not a lot of you. It's unfortunate. Uh, much to my wife's chagrin, I'm a big fan of The Script. Love to listen to him. She's not... She always teases me that every song sounds the same. And then she turns on a band that she's like, I'm like, every song that they do sounds the same. It's called being a band, right? They have their like sound, you know? But I love the band The Script. They're an Irish rock band. Um, they've had some big hits, uh, Hall of Fame. Anybody heard of that one they did with, yeah, some of you. Oh my gosh, this is a sorry group of people. <laughs> Maybe we should just break and listen to it right now. Like, you know, make you feel good. 1.3 billion listens on Spotify to that song. 1.3 billion. If you haven't heard it, where are you? Where have you been in this world, right? Uh, another cool song, Man Who Can't Be Moved, they wrote, Break Even, Superhumans, all kinds of good stuff. But they have one song that ca that's called If You Could See Me Now, and it's from their 2012 album, Number Three, creative name for their third album, Number Three, all right? And uh, this is a great song, and the song is really the, the, the writers of the song, which are the lead singer and the lead guitarist at the time who's since passed away, um, was really about like exploring the pain of loss. Like both of these men had lost their parents, uh, the lead guitarist had lost mother and father. The, the, the writer had, had, the singer, lead singer had just had lost his father tragically uh, on a Valentine's Day. And, and it's just, it's a, it's a song that exposes kind of the pain and the hurt. And the, the lead singer, and they were sitting down to the interview and they said, this song is really about us as two men sitting down and dealing with things. He said, with that song, uh, Mark and I, the, the lead singer and himself, they left the realm of songwriters and began to bear our souls. It began to really live it out and look at it. It says, it's not a look at me song. It's, a, it's us wondering what our parents would think of us now, right? So, so imagining what would our parents think? And there's a, a lyric that's particularly poignant to the topic today that I'm going to try and rush through. So if you're a fill in the blank person, you better keep up because we are got to get through this and get the kids in here and have a great close and it's going to be a wonderful hometown Christmas. But here's the lyric. It says this, there are days when I'm losing my faith because the man wasn't good. He was great. He'd say music was the home for your pain. 
and explain I was young, he would say, take that rage, put it on a page, take the page to the stage, blow the roof off the place. That's like, that's gospel good. (laughs) That's like codify it, put it in the Bible. That's good stuff, right? I love that phrase, like, take, like, like the, the page, that's the space for your pain. So you pour your rage into it, right? So let me ask you this question. What do you do with your rage? What do you do with it? Now, some of you are like, I'm not, I don't have any rage. I'm like, well, ask your neighbor that. Like, ask the person who came with you, okay? Right, now you might not think you have rage. You might not like the word rage. For you, rage might have this sense of out of control. And I'm not necessarily saying that, but rage is a heightened emotion, right? What do you do with your rage? What do you do when hope slips into rage? Because that's what happens, right? Hope slips into rage. Think of it this way, what's the opposite of hope? When I say hope, what do you think of when I say, what's the opposite of hope? Most of us go, well, it's hopelessness. (laughs) We are not allowed to use the word to define its opposite, right? The opposite of hope is hopelessness, right? The opposite of rich is broke, right? I mean, what does that mean though to say hopeless? Because hopeless, while it might be the opposite of hope, it really isn't. So to better understand the loss of hope, we have to ask ourselves, what is hopelessness? And hopelessness occurs in our lives when the outcome, the outcome of a situation is already determined and there is nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do from changing it right? The, the, the round of layoffs happened and there is nothing you can do about it. Your name was on the list. You feel a sense of tension in your marriage. Your marriage seems to be struggling. Your marriage, your, your partnership, th- this relationship long-term is falling apart and you're trying your best, but you just can't seem to have any sense of agency. The person is making their choice and you have a sense of hopelessness, right? Because you feel like the outcome is done. And here's what's fascinating. Anger and rage, like they sit right next to hope. Very, very close to that experience, that experience of hope. So anger is not bad. Rage is not wrong. These are natural human responses. They're normal responses when our expectations, the vision that we have are not met. When our lived experience doesn't match the vision or what we hope for, we experience very quickly anger and rage, right? We get frustrated. And anger and rage is itself a spectrum, right? But that's the immediate movement. I didn't plan this. This isn't what my life was supposed to look like. So the question becomes, what do we do when we butt up against a lived experience that doesn't match our hoped for future? What do we do with that? What do we do with the frustration that our goals are blocked? Because rage is born, right, when an expectation and lived experience don't match. That's where the seed happens. So pathways to our goals get blocked, And our expectations begin to dim. So we think of that experience of a spouse or a parent who's supposed to love us and nurture us. And maybe that hasn't been your experience. Maybe your experience was neglect or abuse. Think about the experience of injustice in our world. When a person's belief of what justice should look like is not matched, rage sets in. And it doesn't matter what your opinion of justice is. It could look very different. We live in a, a pretty, pretty interesting world <laughs> where people have one view of justice and another group has another view of justice. And when those views don't fall into alignment, rage sets in, anger sets in. Riots are a great example of this. And it doesn't matter whether it's the streets of Baltimore or the steps of the Capitol, people's rage 
when hope for justice isn't fulfilled, when what was supposed to happen doesn't happen. And then as rage sets into our lives, it gives way to despair. So the lower our resiliency of hope, the lower our hope quotient in life, rage builds up. We don't see, we don't have the ability to regoal. We don't see a brighter future, a better path. And all of a sudden despair starts to set in and we feel trapped. So think of despair as feeling trapped. You're trapped in a marriage. You are trapped in a job trapped in a career path that you don't want to be on, but you can't see how to get out. And here's what happens. You stay in that space of despair long enough. If it's great enough, if our hope resiliency, our hope quotient is low enough, we find ourselves with the opposite of hope. And that is apathy, right? The final destination in the slide, the loss of hope is apathy. And apathy sets in when the goal is no longer possible. We can't meet that vision. We don't have the mental energy. We don't have the agency to, we don't have the energy to expend our own agency toward that goal or to search for new pathways to hit it. And so we find ourselves in the opposite of hope and that is apathy where we just don't care. There's the absence of all motivation. There's the absence of any goal-focused energy. How many students in the room? Raise your hand up nice and high. You're still a student of sort. Own it. Just own it. We love you. You're brimming with possibility. This happens in the life of students all the time. We get into a course of study, a class, and it's like, I don't get it. I'm lost. And you've tried and you've tried and you tried. And then you feel this sense of like, I'm just stupid. I'll never get it. And apathy sits in and we say what? We just say, I just don't care. Maybe you say it a little more forcefully. I don't give uh, whatever anymore. And we accept the scenario. And so at the end of the day, apathy, I like to think of apathy as this, the opposite of hope. And that is to say, it is the acceptance of what is unacceptable. It's the acceptance of what is unacceptable in our own lives, in our world. And the common thread, right? In rage, despair, and apathy is longing. (laughs) There's just a longing inside of us, a longing to understand the subject, a longing for a healthy marriage, a longing for a parent who loved us and cared for us and nurtured us and provided safety. There's a longing that can't be met. There's an, an, an expectation that's broken. And so we just settle and we say, I just accept it's the reality, but it really is an unacceptable reality. And one could argue that the national sentiment of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus's birth, we're starting Advent today, which is the looking forward to the celebration of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. One could say that the national sentiment at the time of Jesus's birth was apathy, that this is what they were feeling as a nation, as a people. According to estimations of scholars, nine out of 10 people who lived in ancient Israel at the time of Jesus's birth were living below subsistence level. There was no such thing as a middle class. The state itself, leadership, religion, didn't care much, have much concern for the poor. It was seen as a a just punishment from God oftentimes. Inequality and disability were just, they weren't, there was nothing there to improve one's social status. When you live in a, a society, a culture that is heavily based on honor and shame, The culture and religion all plays into that. And if you don't have the money to play the game, if you can't make the sacrifices, if you can't participate, if you are unclean and it's just a cycle and you just become more and more and more destitute. And at the time of Jesus's birth, there was a ruler who seemed to be imposing even more and more of this on the people that he was led, that he was leading. And that was Herod the Great. Y'all ever heard of Herod the Great? This guy was something else. Herod the Great. Did you know that Herod the Great started his career in that area as the 
governor of Galilee. Anybody know anything about Galilee? Somebody kind of important grew up there. So Galilee itself, this place that Jesus grew up, had, sur- had like felt the weight of Herod when he was kind of the provincial governor of that space. And he did that for about 10 years, maybe 30, 40 years before Jesus was born. So Galilee knew very well the lunacy and insanity of this leader, Herod the Great. And in the year 37, right, uh, C- BCE, Herod the Great, on orders from Mark Antony, comes and he conquers Jerusalem, brings an army in and conquers Jerusalem. I don't know if you know that uh, people have been fighting over Jerusalem for a long time. Just let that one pause for a second. (laughs) And I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail, although I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts if you ever want to hear them and argue with me about them. That's wonderful. So he comes in, he conquers it. And at that point, he declares himself king of the Jews, king of the Jews, Herod the Great. And this guy was something else. Like he was as brutal and tyrant that there ever was. In fact, he had 10 wives, one of his wives and three of his sons he had executed. He had assassinated because he thought they were plotting to take over his power. And so Herod becomes this beautiful picture of all that is wrong with power and authority and oppression. And so Matthew, as he's writing his story, his gospel of Jesus, he embodies all of that in Herod the Great and tells us this wonderfully awful story of an edict that went out from Herod to kill all the newborn children two years and younger because Herod did not want this king of the Jews that he had heard that was born to come of age and remove him of his power. Now, historians will tell us it's highly unlikely. We have no record of Herod the Great ever doing that. Might have happened, might not have happened. What Matthew's trying to tell us is this is what's happening. (laughs) This is what it's like. This is what it is that we're just constantly being oppressed. Our children are suffering. Our children are dying under the weight of Roman oppression. Where do we go? Our religious leaders, our own leaders are in cahoots with the Romans. What is it that we can do? There is no There is no hope. The nations rage. The people are in despair. And in the Gospel of John, probably the most eclectic, strange gospel that tells the story of Jesus, John calls this feeling of rage and despair and apathy. He says it like this. He says, it's darkness trying to overcome the light. Right? That's his metaphor for it. Matthew's metaphor is Herod killing all the babies. John's metaphor is darkness overcoming the light as he reflects back and looks at this beautiful story of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. He says, this was the period that it was happening. This is what was going on. It was an erosion of hope, what, what hope scientists call this process of losing hope. And when apathy sets in, Like the focus has to now be on what? The focus has to become on pathways and strategies and everything because it's huge when we sit in a space that says we just don't care. So in John chapter one, verse 23, John says, when they come to him, they say, who are you? He says, I'm the the one crying out in the wilderness. I'm the one that says, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So the writer of John is like looking back to his tradition and saying, where do we see this experience? And he looks at Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah's writing towards the end of the Babylonian exile. Isn't this fun, a little bit of history for everybody? 
And the writer of John is looking and he's saying, gosh, this is just like when our people were in exile and they were longing to return. We're living and this is the ultimate exile. And this is the ultimate. So he looks back and he kind of grabs a hold of it. And I just want to read this for you very quickly in, in, in Isaiah chapter 40. This is what it says. Written in the rage and despair and the apathy of the Babylonian exile, this prophet, who's not the same prophet Isaiah that we think of, like there's this whole school of thought, writes these words, and it's the perfect shadow, foreshadowing of the rage that the people would feel under the Roman rule. So this is what Isaiah says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Ancient, antic way of thinking was that you were des uh, deserving everything from God. That was how they interpreted their events in human history. I don't believe that the God of the universe was punishing Israel, but that was the way, and it's the, still the way many people think of the divine, but it wasn't the way Jesus thought of the divine. And Isaiah says, there's a voice that cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What is that? A pathway. Make a path. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God and let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. Right, you've heard this in Handel's Messiah. And it's this idea that all the obstacles, all the obstacles for the hope of God need to be leveled. And the glory of God shall be revealed and all flesh will see together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now we tend to stop at Christmas time there, but we gotta read on because we miss what John is doing here. It goes on and it says this, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And so God is telling the prophet, say this, all flesh is grass. Their constancy is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of our God will stand forever. Hang on to that little phrase. The word of our God will stand forever. Because John is tapping into two very powerful themes from Isaiah. First is the theme of pathway, and the second is the theme of word. And so John says there is a kingdom that is coming. There is a light in the darkness. And what will rule this kingdom is the very word of God, and he gets it all from Isaiah. And so in John chapter one, verse one through nine, John writes this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through this word and without it, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in the word was life and the life was the light of all people and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. This word, this wisdom, this way of being, all that holds all things together that everything flows out of is, is this word of God, this very logos. And he's going back to Isaiah and Isaiah says, this word, this rule, this way of being, this way of thinking that is filled with justice and inclusion and mercy and grace and hope, this is what God is. And this is what's being born in the fullness in the man Jesus. And then John says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, different John, don't be confused. He says, this man was not the light, but he was preparing the way. He was a witness to testify. He wasn't the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And so for John, get this, the word of God, the mind of God, the thinking of the divine, right? That in which we live and move and have our being is the pathway for peace on earth. And the agency was John the Baptist who's coming and saying, hey, this is happening. 
this longing of your heart, this wish, this apathy that set in, let me present to you a pathway. Let's make it straight. And so here's the thing. The light isn't simply Jesus. We can't just go, well, Jesus is the light of the world. I mean, I know we say that and we sing it and it's there, but listen, it's bigger than that. What is actually the light of the world is the wisdom of God found in the fullness of Jesus. It's found in its fullness in Jesus. And that's the word of God. And so the light of the world, this hope for justice and righteousness and peace and equity and grace and forgiveness, all of that is found. And it says the light came into our darkness. It was visible in the life, death, and the mystery of this one born in a manger. The very word of God. And so John the Baptist became an icon of rising hope. If you wanted to know what it looked like to have rising hope amidst rage and despair and apathy, then you look at John the Baptist because he offered people a vision that the ruler kingdom of God was coming. He got it kind of wrong because <laughs> Jesus came saying the kingdom of God is here. And I think Jesus was saying it's always been here. But John presents this hope that there's a vision, it's coming, and he offered the people a pathway. He did something really weird. He invited all the people to leave the city, cross the Jordan River, then get into the Jordan River, be baptized, come out of the Jordan River and go back into Jerusalem, a changed person, right? That's what he was doing. He was reenacting the Exodus, if you're familiar with that story. So he was offering people their own pathway, their own agency to repent, to choose to believe in this one who was coming after him, to live under this wisdom, this word, this rule of God, not under the temple rules. St. Augustine, who was the Bishop of North Africa, he said this, hope has two beautiful daughters, their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. See, that's John. <laughs> John was filled with hope, rage, and courage. He was hopeful that God was at work. He was filled with rage at the way things were and he had the courage to stand up even to the point of death and say, there's one who's coming. I'm not even fit to tie his sandals. So don't miss this. I know we're going fast and I'm still going too slow. But don't miss this, hope, genuine hope when we're facing apathy, when we're sliding into it, requires harnessing rage and acting courageously to overcome the apathy. And we harness this rage and courage in the direction of what? Of love. We harness that towards the direction of love. First of all, love of self. Oh, wow, that's weird, Ryan. You tell me I should love myself? Absolutely. You can't, get, you can't get to love your neighbor. You can't get to love your God. You can't get to any other love until you love yourself. Because loving yourself is understanding the value that you have, which then translates into the value that others have, which then translates into where does this value come from? Oh, it comes from the divine. So let me ask you some questions as we head towards communion together, as we get ready to go out into our everyday normal lives. Let me ask you this. Where in your personal life have you accepted what is unacceptable? Where in your personal life have you just started to find yourself in a place of apathy? Where you've just said, that's it. Maybe it's a relationship. It just is what it is. It's the best it's gonna be. Maybe it's a job. It's just too late. I'm too late in my career. I can't make any changes or... It's just too competitive. I don't have the right education. I can't do it. The economic climate's just too hard to make any kinds of change. Maybe it's your own anger. Maybe you've just resigned to be an angry person. And it doesn't matter other people around you. It's just who you are. Maybe it's lust. 
in your heart demonstrated in greed? Where is it that you've just settled for what you know is unacceptable? Maybe there's a wound in your life. Maybe you grew up and that love and that acceptance and that place of safety wasn't there. And there's a longing that it was there, but there's just an apathy that has set in over the years, a callousness that just says it is what it is and it's just why I am why I am. Maybe a wound from someone, a partner, an ex-spouse. And you've just kind of said, well, it's acceptable. And so as you think about that right now, just, just in, we, by the way, we all have the spot, okay? That's, it's normal that we have something in our lives that we go, I just is what it is, I'm not gonna try. But, but there's something nagging at your spirit right now. Like, where is that? And just hold it, just hold it. And ask yourself this question, where are you on the hope continuum in that area? If there's hope, and then it slides to anger, rage, and then it slides to despair, and then it slides to apathy, where would you be? I'm kind of, I got a little bit of hope still. I can kind of see a path. I'm just angry. I'm angry that I've tried. I'm angry that I got undercut. I'm angry that this person left me. I'm filled with rage. Maybe you've worked through that anger a little bit and you're like, okay, I'm gonna try again. And just another block, another obstacle hits you. You're in the despair moment. And maybe you just come to apathy. Maybe as a student, it's like, ah, I'm just... I don't even care anymore. I don't care about my marriage. I don't care about my relationship with my kids. I don't care about my coworkers. Forget it. You're just in that space of apathy. You got to figure out where you are in there. And then here's the thing. Ask yourself, how can I focus my rage? How can I act courageously to rewrite what is unacceptable in my life? How can I do that? And here's the thing. The farther down you are on that hope continuum, okay? The farther down you are towards apathy, here's what I want to encourage you. Set a very, very small goal. So the more hopeless you feel, the more apathy that set in, you gotta create a small goal. Create the pathway, understand your agency, and accomplish that small goal to just start moving back up the continuum. And that is rising hope. And that is the longing of our hearts, right, coming to be. What is unacceptable, becoming unacceptable again. So the farther you are away from hope, the smaller the goal. There's a band called uh, Remedy Drive. You definitely haven't heard of them if you haven't heard of the script, okay? <laughs> David Zach is a lead singer and he's a songwriter for this band. And, and he's also an advocate for, uh, against human trafficking. And he works with an organization called Exodus Road, which is actually right out of Colorado Springs. And the band's community and fan base has raised about half a million dollars in the fight against human trafficking, rewriting what we call an unacceptable reality of modern day slavery. That organization along with David Zach has uh, contributed to for the freedom of 1500 survivors and 800 arrests of traffickers. David Zach actually goes undercover for these or this organization around the world in exposing human trafficking. And he wrote this song called Brighter Than Apathy. And this song is about his own desire to live his life for something bigger brighter, not to be overcome by the despair and the rage that you feel. And the chorus of this song says, I want to live for something bigger than me, stronger than fear, brighter than apathy. And when you're 
combating one of these five unacceptable truths like we talk about as a community. It's really easy to just let rage and anger set in and despair and apathy. And I love that mantra. I want to live for something brighter than apathy because that's, I just, I gotta have something bigger than that rage. And I've gotta turn that rage into courage. Like the script, what do you do with your rage? And as we channel our rage, as we focus it to new pathways, as we focus our rage towards the direction of love, something very powerful happens. We ensure that the night will never overwhelm the light of our souls. And Advent reminds us that. Advent reminds us this period, starting right now till the birth of Christmas, till we light candles on Christmas Eve together, it reminds us of what John said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. So as we have communion this morning, what is it that God's inviting you into? As you think about the sliding of hope and the rising of hope, maybe God's just inviting you to no longer accept what is unacceptable in your personal life. It's just, that's, it. that's what I've got. I got a vision that I am not gonna accept this anymore. I'm not gonna accept the state of my spiritual life. I'm not gonna accept the state of my marriage. I'm not gonna accept, ex- just, just accept where I am parenting. I'm not gonna just accept where I am financially. And you just say, this is unacceptable. And now I'm gonna just begin to make some choices. I'm gonna look for vision. And maybe it's to set a new goal that can focus that rage and courage towards reaching that goal within the power of love. Maybe it's to join the Advent journey. You've heard us talking about Advent today. It's like, I just can join in. (laughs) Download the app, get the book. Just every day, spend a few minutes thinking through the longings of our hearts. When those longings aren't expressed, where do I go? How do I turn? What does that look like? So I'm gonna invite everyone to stand. We're gonna sing some Christmas carols. Our kids are gonna join us in a moment. Why we do this? We're gonna have communion. It's set up at the tables. It's, uh, if you're sitting at a table, there's communion elements there. If you're in the bleachers, there's a small table. Everybody in the place is invited for communion today. There's no class here. There's no secret handshake. Uh, there's no amount you have to give in the offering. None of that. These are metaphors. They're symbols of a belief that God includes and loves all. And so the body of Christ is represented by the bread and the the blood of Jesus is represented in the juice. And it's this idea that living a life of love, of sacrifice nourishes us and reminds us that we are held by the divine in perfect love, nothing to fear. And that this divine love, this divine reality is with us. So we're not alone. So it makes hope supercharged when you combine the science with the spirituality of it that While I have agency, I know that I'm never alone in it. I'm never alone in it. So as we sing this song, I wanna invite you to live in a space of hope. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. It's kind of easy if you think of it this way, like if if everybody leaves their rows this way (laughs) and enters back that way, you won't stumble over each other, right? And just go to your closest station. So it makes life a little bit easier. I know it's very confusing though. So exit this way and return to your seat this way and we'll get everybody moving. It'll be quite impressive. All right. So we're going to sing some Christmas carols. Our kids are going to join us and I'll be back with our blessing here in just a little bit. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Come and eat and drink. (laughs) 